0: Some background on first corinthians uh, the book was uh, written around ad 50 or at least that's when the church was founded the, the letter was written probably shortly after uh, corinth was a, a, a city that was a very important center of culture and trade there were many gods worshipped as in most major greek uh, greco-roman cities and there was lots of gods and philosophical schools and mystery religions um, and like i said paul founded the church and it probably started with his preaching in Athens. We're told in Acts 18 that as Paul is preaching at the synagogue of Athens There's a large group of Corinthians there and they were really taken with Paul And so they probably came back to Corinth and said we got to tell you about this guy Jesus Christ that was uh, You know died in Nazareth or died in Jerusalem was raised and, and you got to hear this teaching And so Paul then goes to Corinth and interestingly enough, he stays in Corinth for 18 months that's the second longest time he stayed anywhere in his ministry. Paul was constantly on the go. But in Corinth, he really settled down, lay a lot of groundwork. And the church would benefit not just from his ministry, but from others associated with him. Priscilla and Aquila were founders of the Corinthian church. Uh, Apollos, one of the great um, teachers of the early church, who was a disciple both of Paul and uh, Priscilla and Aquila's. And even Peter it's believed, based on 1 Corinthians, came to Corinth and uh, spent time ministering to them. Now, the letter, if you know anything about Corinthians, there's some really juicy church gossip in this. There are deep pastoral issues that come up in 1 Corinthians. You have a whole bunch of sexual immorality. You've got tied into that marriage issues. You've got people Uh, debating about how to properly eat food sacrificed to idols, you have debates about spiritual gifts, you have debates about how worship is to be structured, and then you have also near the end of the book worrying teachings about what actually happened with the resurrection of Christ and what that means for our own resurrections. So that is why uh, 1 Corinthians was written to address all these in a pastoral manner, and what we're looking at today is the very beginning of chapter 15, where Paul famously discusses the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here now, the reading of God's Word, First Corinthians 15:3: "For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, as I prepared this sermon this week, I was all too aware of my need for this verse to be reminded of the truth of the gospel that you sent your son and he died for my sins He died for the sins of your Church that you have called in his name that you have saved that you bring to your son jesus christ Though we were wicked and rebellious He died for us, and that this has been the plan from the beginnings of the world, as it says, in accordance with the scriptures. I pray, God, that this sermon would deeply touch our hearts, that we are in need of your mercies every day, that we are overjoyed at what it means that we are forgiven, truly forgiven, because of your Son's work on the cross. As I preach the Word of God today, may the Son of God be glorified, may the Word of God be magnified, and may the people of God be edified. Amen. All right, how many of you know the sport of lacrosse? Yes, see, not too many. I didn't have any other good sports analogies, and I kind of needed a sport analogy to make this opening introduction work, but it could work with other sports. Baseball, for instance. There's always a fundamental thing you have to get right when you play a sport. For baseball, it's don't take your eye off the ball. That's important whether you're throwing it to somebody else or whether you're you know, at bat and trying to hit the ball. I infamously did take my eye off the ball and my dad hit me in the face with a baseball. I did not play baseball going forward. I did play lacrosse and the most important thing in lacrosse is not throwing because it's actually pretty easy to do. It's not moving with the ball because the ball kind of sticks in the net if you know anything about it. The most important thing in lacrosse is you have to be able to scoop the ball up off the ground it's kind of tricky once you get the feel of it it's easy it is like riding a bike and you scoop it up but you need to be able to scoop the ball up because the ball is constantly falling on the ground and if you don't scoop it up fast enough a very big very fast person is gonna run at you with no pads on and hit you away from the ball and then they're gonna scoop it up and take it away but there's that's the one thing if you can do that you can build a lacrosse player if you can throw a baseball and catch it you can build a baseball player there is always in whether sports or work or parenting or marriage there is always something of first importance most important to get right or to have be our primary focus in order for us to live together to work to be able to play baseball or lacrosse or whatever it might be uh, The first importance for the Christian faith is the cross. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is what Paul and the early church are constantly preaching. Uh, John Stott, in his famous book, The Cross of Christ, begins by talking about how interesting it is that of all the symbols that defined the early church, all the symbols that our ancient spiritual ancestors chose, they chose the cross. They could have chosen the manger to reflect, you know, the, the uh, incarnation of Christ, becoming just a little child. They could have chosen uh, tools. I mean, our Lord was a, a carpenter and, and called us to a life of service. They could have chosen lots of different things and in, in early depictions. When you go to the catacombs of Rome and other cities, we find other images. We see Jesus depicted as a good shepherd. We see images of a peacock, which represented resurrection. But when it came to a unifying symbol, we chose the cross, a symbol of execution, a symbol of death, a symbol that Jews knew all too well and would have been embarrassed by. They would not want that to be their banner. It's too painful. It's too hurtful. The Romans had done it to Jews too many times, and yet they got behind the banner of the cross. It is the most important thing in our faith. Dr. Archibald Alexander was the first uh, seminary professor at Princeton. I messed the wording up that, but he was the first professor that Princeton Seminary called back in the 1800s. He would be a pastor for 60 years. He was a professor for 40. Uh, His mentorship made Princeton this powerhouse of orthodox theology and missions throughout the world. And on his deathbed, with all of his accolades and his achievements and the legacy that was becoming Princeton Seminary, on his deathbed, he said to a friend, all my theology is reduced to this narrow compass. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It sounds a lot like Paul saying, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So why is the death of Christ for our sins of first importance? Why is it so important that Paul is going to spend a very lengthy part of his letter to the Corinthians to highlight the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's important because of, like all good sermons, three alliterated reasons. It's important because there is a message to be heard, there's a Messiah to be believed, and there's a mission to be lived. Let's look at first the message to be heard. Look again at the very beginning of verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You know, Paul, if you know about his life, he was uh, a persecutor of the, of the Christians. He was on his way to Damascus, and he had this charge that he could imprison Christians, and bam, he's knocked off his horse. He has this appearance of the Lord actually appearing to him, and Saul is, you know, his name was Saul at the time. He He's not just, you know, converted. He becomes very quickly one of the spokesmen of the early church. And so when he actually ends up uh, getting to where he was going, the the Jews in the synagogue who were believing in Jesus were shocked because they knew Paul was coming, and he's supposed to be a persecutor, and now he's a preacher. What's going on? But Paul uh, had this revelation of Jesus Christ, and it completely changed his life. He became a devoted preacher, and he received... Something from his efforts. He received something from the other disciples that he would eventually gather around. Paul was not just a brilliant theologian. Part of his brilliance was that he was humble. He knew he needed teaching. He had seen the Lord Jesus appear. He got that part. Based on what we know in the book of Acts, he may have actually early on heard the preaching of Stephen, who was martyred in Acts 7, and even held the coats of those who killed him. So he was familiar with this Jesus story. And now all the pieces have kind of come together and he becomes this prolific preacher. I mean, that's what we know about Paul. He's written the most books in the New Testament. He's constantly preaching. So maybe you're familiar with why this would be important. Why is the Christian faith a message to be heard? Because let me know if you've heard this quote before. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. So this quote is by uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Except it's not it's something like all good internet quotes. uh, It was just been attributed to him It sounds a lot like something Francis of Assisi sort of did say But people use this now in a very odd way. There's it's a big movement now within a new form of evangelism It's one based on having deep relationships with non-believers. The idea is now that we as Christians are so discredited We are clearly hypocrites, we are clearly having major pastors and preachers and teachers fall, which is true. Most of us know kind of who I'm probably referencing, but big time apologist who recently found out had a whole lifetime full of unrepentant sin and has hurt a lot of people. All these things are true, and so the idea is that we are no longer credible. Who wants to go, you know, be preached at or be judged? That's the view of what we as Christians, you know, do to people. Or if people think about evangelism, they automatically assume that we are, you know, standing on street corners with signs with very provocative language about where everyone's going to end up except for me holding the sign. That's the view of evangelism. So now, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Sounds pretty good. It means I could live my life in a gospel way that draws people in and seems attractive. So the idea would be that we befriend the lost, we spend time with them, we let them see us in our daily lives, and they will come to know us as different. And that this difference is that crisis in our lives. So there's nothing wrong with that, right? We should pursue relationships with, you know, whoever God brings in our path. Some of them are are not believers. And we, I would hope, have opportunities to, you know, present the Gospels with the Gospel with how we actually live. I hope if you Run a business that you're not like cheating customers or cheating vendors or things like that. That you're honest in your work. That, kids, that you're honest with your parents and your schoolwork and your teachers. But it's also becoming true that we're now thinking that we can live people or do things in such a way that people will get saved. That people will be so enamored with our lifestyle, our way of living... That that is good enough without ever confronting a giant issue, and that is sin. So in a culture now where that is either increasingly hostile or ignorant of the Christian faith, it's becoming that we never speak the gospel and that no one ever actually hears about it. But the speaking and hearing of the gospel is the primary method of biblical evangelism. When you think of Peter's first sermons in Acts 2 through 4, the preaching of the word is at the forefront of how people are hearing about Jesus Christ, and it's not always comforting. In fact, it's downright condemning in some ways. I mean, think about it this Acts 2, the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem. It's the festival of Pentecost, which is originally a Jewish holiday. There's lots of people in Jerusalem to celebrate this, and the Holy Spirit descends on the early church. And people think they're drunk because they're speaking in different languages and Peter gets this opportunity to preach Everybody there is either a Jew or a God-fearer. That would be a, a Gentile person who wants to pursue the God of the Jews and This is one of the lines from Peter's sermon to these Jews This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He got to a hard point that the Jews had rejected Jesus, that those people gathered in front of him had rejected Christ and had him crucified. But he doesn't just leave them condemned. Later, after he's given them the the story of what Christ has done, they are cut to the heart, Luke says in Acts And they cry out, What should we do? And Peter responds, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Part of the argument against speaking the gospel message is that the gospel is reduced to some type of proposition that we just believe about, and then it doesn't have a lot of emphasis with how we actually live our lives. And that's how one uh, Christian minister put it in a piece he wrote for the Huffington Post in 2012. This is what he said. Others fear that too much of Christianity has become nothing more than a product of the Enlightenment, where belief is equated with the affirmation of propositional truths, with little demand for lived expression. So the point being is, if we just preach the gospel and tell people to believe in it, they might you know, think that that's what saves them, or they might think that the, the truths themselves are somehow what is going to save them just if they believe it, and that can't be true. That's got to be a product of the enlightenment that belief uh, could actually save. The problem with that is that a right belief in a true statement is exactly how we come to faith. If you have uh, your Bible and you want to turn with me, you can look at Romans 10. In Romans 10, beginning in verse 9, this is what Paul writes. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead and we declare him Lord, we're going to be saved. mind Grasping the truth of that statement, heart being touched by a good God who sent his son to die for you and forgive you of your sins, leads to us to confess that we are sinners in need of saving. All of that is not the enlightenment. Because Romans 10 was written 1,700 years before the movement of enlightenment began. The gospel message has to be preached. It has to be to be believed. And we can do this living with our lives and loving people well, but at some point we have to actually explain who Jesus is, what he did for us, what's actually wrong with humanity. So before we move on, we can keep reading in Romans 10 and look at verse 14 because this is so important to counteract that view of evangelism. 10.14 says, How are they to believe in whom in him of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I I cannot be saved without hearing the gospel preached. I cannot start living like a Christian before I've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and convicted of my sins. The gospel does have to include condemnation of our sins, and that's actually a good thing. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1:15 that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's not just him pointing a finger at all of you sinners. He points it back at himself and says, "Of whom I am the foremost." I think the good old King James says, "Of whom I am chief." The Christian life is not for the strong, it's not for the put together, it's for the weak the messy, the ones who know that the only way they can change is by something working on them to save them outside of themselves. The gospel has got to include the person who can do that work in my life. And that leads us to a Messiah to be believed in. In verses, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, if we kept reading, um, you would see that this is almost an early creed. It starts with the fact that Christ died for our sins and then in verse 4 it moves on that he was dead and buried in accordance with scripture that he was raised from the dead it talks about him as uh, seeing uh, appearing to his disciples and then seeing and interacting and then Paul talks about you know he finally appeared to me and what grace that was and how wonderful that was it's, a, it's an early creed and it accurately details the last days of Jesus but interestingly enough Paul doesn't call him Jesus here, even though he's talking about the historical person, right? What did he receive? He received that Christ died for our sins. Why just Christ? Paul usually says Jesus or Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, but here it's just Christ. Well, the clue is what follows. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. From the beginning... Of our sinfulness, God has been promising a way to make it right. If you go back to the garden when humanity fell, God is giving curses on Adam and Eve and he also curses the serpent and he says that the offspring of the woman will crush your head and you will bite his heel. From Genesis, God is promising a certain offspring who will come and deliver his people. And then we see this throughout scripture, right? He calls a particular man, Abraham, who gives birth to a son who God calls that whole family in Israel. And that family is then represented and defended and guided by a righteous and good king in David and Solomon. And though they fall, though they sin, God continues and continues and continues to provide hope for a way to be delivered from this great first enemy, Satan. And so in Isaiah 53, which we read for the assurance of our pardon, I'm going to read just a few passages of why it's important that he emphasizes Christ, the office of the, this chosen person who he, God sent to save the world. Isaiah 53 is the passage of the suffering servant. It's a, Isaiah is seeing Christ suffering for the sins of the world. So he says in Isaiah fifty three, four, Surely he that is the Messiah has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then in verses eleven, which I've read for our assurance of pardon again, at the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Remember what Paul said? Through one man's sin, many were made sinful, and through one man's righteousness, many will be made righteous. The man, the Messiah, the Christ is the one who makes us righteous. And so then we should probably think about if this is what Christ is meant to do, why do we start with dying for our sins? Why does Christ have to die for sins? What is sin? Well, we did 1 John a few months ago. And I'm sure all of you remember every sermon on 1 John. But 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It is breaking God's law. That's true. But it also goes much deeper. Right? David cries out in the Psalms, I was sinful from birth. In Genesis 6, God sees the wickedness of humanity and says, man is evil in their hearts. There is a sickness. There's no one who does good. And the good news is that we're all bad. Jesus summarized that the law was to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbors. Now, it's quick to kind of see us sin our neighbors, if I speak harshly to my wife, who is definitely a neighbor, I, I can quickly you know, figure out that I've wronged her based on her reaction back to me, or just my own consciousness that I've wronged her. It's quick to see how we could sin against those God has brought into our lives, whether we're children, spouses, co-workers. But we also have to think about how we have wronged God, right? The first commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It is God whom we sin against. So, wouldn't our failure to love God mean our inevitable failure to love our neighbor? So, what is sin? John Piper defines sin in this way. And I know I've said this before, but truly, my favorite Christian rapper, a guy named Shy has John Piper begin his sermon this way, or has a, a song that begins this way with a quote from John Piper What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. It's the holiness of God, not reverenced. It's the greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized, the person of God, not loved. That is sin. If that is sin, I hope at some point you would cry out like we have cried out before, I am wretched, who will save me? It's Christ who died for our sins who will save you. He went from absolute divinity to share in our humanity, from power to weakness, from heaven to earth, from exalted to humble, from one who knew no sin, to be made sin on your behalf, in your place, so that you would become righteous. As beautiful as all that is, how does it work? Charles Spurgeon illustrated this, I thought, very well. He tells the story of a man in Spain who was condemned to be shot. The problem was, he was born English, but he was a citizen of America. And the consuls of those two great countries implored the Spanish government not to condemn the man. They said they did not have the authority. So Spurgeon says, How did they secure his life when the protest was not sufficient? They wrapped him in the flags. They covered him with the stars and stripes and the Union Jack and defied the executioners. Now fire a shot if you dare, for if you do so, you defy the nations represented by those flags. And you will bring the powers of those two great empires upon you. There stood the man, and before him the soldiery, and though a single shot might have ended his life, yet he was as invulnerable as though encapsed in triple steel. Even so, Jesus Christ has taken my poor guilty soul ever since I believed in him. And has wrapped around me the blood red flag of his atoning sacrifice. And before God can destroy me or any other soul that is wrapped in the atonement, he would have to insult his son and dishonor his sacrifice. And he will not do that. And blessed be his name. Only Spurgeon can talk like that. Only Spurgeon can illustrate that so well. But you are covered by Christ's work of the cross. So is all this, like that minister wrote, just a belief to be embraced in the head and have nothing to do with our lives? No, we have a mission to be lived out because of the cross. Earlier we looked at that quote from St. Francis. His actual words were a little different. It is shown that he probably said something very close to this. It is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. It's a little more nuanced, a little bit better. It's a little more in line with Scripture, where Paul charges the Corinthians that without love, they gain nothing, even if they're speaking in tongues, prophesying, looking very pious. If they don't have love in their hearts, they're not going to go far. It also reminds us of his words to the Ephesians, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In Galatians 2.20, Paul promises us that if we have been crucified with Christ, the life that we now live We live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for us. Peter would nail the balance of this perfectly, about sharing the gospel and living in a worthy manner. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So yes, we have a mission to live. If we're Christians, I hope we are living differently. Christ called us to be salt and light in the world. Our speech should be marked with gentleness and respect. We shouldn't be speaking foully or with bad language or defaming other people, speaking against them, gossiping. I mean, the tongue, James says, can, you know, is a dangerous weapon. We shouldn't be presenting the gospel with bitterness and hatred. Right now, our culture loves that. We love the put down. We love the th- five-second soundbite of just you know I don't know why this guy popped into my head just now but you know, Ben Shapiro the the prominent uh, conservative new uh, I don't know what he is but conservative voice he's got a lot of great points sometimes but man one of his big things is he's feisty and he gets people and he just he owns the libs but sometimes it does come at a cost of I don't know if I'd actually like to be around Ben Shapiro I don't know how that's going to work if I'm around somebody that's constantly just trying to get you or gotcha or constantly attacking me. We have to balance the hope that we have, as Peter says, but with gentleness and respect. And here will be the hard part in the coming future. We are the fact that we are going to call people sinners, which I hope we would always lead with, we are sinners, look at our sins, this is our problem, our human problem is sin, is it's going to be increasingly viewed as personal attacking. People are going to be offended by the gospel message because we don't want to be challenged or hear about our sins or our failures or our shortcomings or that we're wrong. I don't like to be told I'm wrong. Do you want it to be told you're wrong? So this will be our challenge as we go forward to live out this mission of declaring because people are going to go to hell if we do not share the gospel. And Christ died so that we would go out and preach about the good news that there's forgiveness in the cross. What are we going to do when we get to the judgment seat of Christ and we just say, I just really tried to live great and attractively and I hope people came. God has brought people into your life that are going to hear the gospel because of you. Are you going to take that opportunity and speak the gospel? How will they be saved if they've never heard? I'll close with this. Uh, Penn Gillette is a famous magician. Uh, he's part of the comedy magician duo Penn and Teller. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen them before. They're funny. Uh, Penn is massive. I mean, he's like 6'6", six, six, big guy. Teller is probably shorter than me. But uh, while they're magicians and comedians, uh, there are Penn, Gillette, is also a well-known advocate for atheism. He's become, over the past decade, very, very vocal about it. He's been in documentaries and interviews. Um, he's been vocal along the same lines of Richard Dawkins. He definitely thinks, you know, religion is bad. And that, um, you know, it's not good for society or for even your life. But, unlike Richard Dawkins, he has a big problem with a certain hypocrisy of Christians. And he went viral a few years ago for sharing a video uh, explaining what that problem is. And this is what he said. He recorded a video where a guy had come up to him after one of his shows. And uh, the man complimented Gillette on the show and said, Hey, I, I brought this for you. And the man held up a small book and it was a new testament with the psalms in it and uh you know P- P- Penn said it was one of those you could fit it right in your pocket and the man said I-, I wrote a little message for you in the front of it and i wanted you to have it he the man said i'm not crazy i'm just a businessman came to the show enjoyed it but i, I really i felt like you needed this and this is what pen gillette said he was kind and nice and sane and he looked me in the eyes And he talked to me and then he gave me this Bible. I have always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you really believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think it's not really worth telling me this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to do that? He gives this illustration to close out the video. If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I have to tackle you and that tackling is more important than how you're going to feel afterwards. That man, first of all, for Penn Jillette, this noted atheist to say that, shocked a lot of people, that's why it went viral. They expected what I really can't stand is the hypocrites who come up and tell me about their faith and tell me about heaven and hell. Penn's saying there's an inconsistency in your faith if you don't share that part of the story, if you don't share that little bit of the information. Forget your best life now. I need to know about the life after this one that you believe in, that I might be going to a very bad place about. Do you believe the story enough you love me enough to share that bit of it with me? This man, whoever he was that did this for uh, Mr. Gillette, he took Paul's teaching to heart. The first important thing in the Christian message is that Christ died for our sins. If that is true, our lives will be changed. We will see our sinfulness more And we will want to repent and be conformed to Christ. It means that we will see the sinfulness of the world more and we will want to share that God has made a way for forgiveness. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins because he loves you. Jesus knew no sin but he willingly bore all of your sins on the cross so that you could be called righteous in Christ. It means that the cross is the engine for our preaching and evangelizing. And the hope that we would share this message with everyone that God brings to us. So to do this is the most loving thing we can do, and it is of first importance. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for... Your word which draws us back to the first things the most important things that we can do in this life There are there are many great things we can do lord with what you've blessed us with whether uh, Money or time or skill sets or services we can build wells. We can donate clothes We can help build houses. We can do lots of great and good things that are definitely Consistent with a christian life, but this we can't do we cannot die for our own sins we cannot save ourselves from our sins. We need Christ who died for our sins. May that always be our starting point. May that always be the first thing that we have at our hearts, that we remind ourselves that we were bought with a price and that there is a world that is lost that Christ is claiming and has people that he has called and elected to, do, to be brought in to the people of God. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Please stand as we sing hymn 251, Beneath the Cross of Jesus.